HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. The interview you are about to hear was recorded on-site at Heath Ceramics' new factory in San Francisco for a special episode of The Food Scene. So I'm sitting with Kathy and uh, Robin, who are now and have been for the past decade owners of Heath Ceramics. Can you tell me a little about this company? It's kind of eponymous of, you know, plateware, dinnerware in restaurant culture and in kitchen culture on the West Coast. and kind of across the nation, but you've really made a home here. What, what, what has it meant to San Francisco, Sausalito, and to you two as, as you know, users and now owners? Well, that definitely goes you know, beyond uh, you know, the 10 years that we've been here, um, having started in 1948 as you know, Edith Heath throwing pots in her, in her studio apartment. Um, but, and then quickly, I think in the next decade or so, you know, making dinnerware not just for people in their homes, it's all through department stores and places like that, but then to restaurants. And so Heath, I think pretty quickly from the 60s on, started making restaurant dinnerware. There was a line they introduced called the Rim Line that was specific to restaurants with a little bit more of a durability than what they originally made. Um, and it was a big part of the business for a lot of years. And I think that in the past 10 years that we've been uh, with Heath, you know, we've enjoyed a parallel good fortune with the good fortune of all the wonderful restaurants and food culture that we have here in the Bay Area, in Northern California as a whole. It's kind of interesting to note, too, that like the, the feel of Heath, I think, is very um, consistent with um, 
Northern California mid-century feel. Um, it was kind of like a natural, earthy feel that Edith Heath was doing in mid-century, and that was pretty unique because there was other dishes being made in Los Angeles, um, in uh, where are the other, like in Ohio, and there was a lot of um, dishware being made that was um, fun. It was exciting. It was like super designy mid-century kind of colorful stuff and Heath was not you know Heath was of the earth and it was you know it had a different sensibility and um, I think that that was retained all the way until 2003 is really notable and is something that really resonated and then was appreciated again. I think that the um, you know the focus on the natural materials um, on simple shapes has meant that it's had a certain timeless quality throughout the different decades. You know, in the 50s, it could be mid-century modern. In the 70s, it could be a little bit Northern California hippie funky. And now today, it can be modern again. And same plates, same glazes. So seeing a whole bunch of different lines uh, since 1948, I believe, when he started, uh, I mean, you've had, like you said, the rim line, but even before that, the coupe. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, the plaza in the 80s and Chez Panisse line came out uh, soon after you purchased the company. Yeah, 2005 or six. But again, there's always been a common thread amongst Heath. And, and what is it about the design that someone can instantly see a piece and know that it is Heath Ceramics? Um, I think the, the roots of that are really in the materials. So the clay that we use today is the same. The brown clay, especially, I think really is distinctive to Heath. Um, It's like a warm brown clay, and even on the edges of the plates, the glazes are scraped away so you can see that material. And that is the clay that was designed in 1948. So, you know, it's really consistent. Even as the company's gotten a little bigger, there's been no compromise um, at all, only, you know, small improvements to make it stronger. Um, there is a white clay, too, that gives a different look. But that material, those clays, combined with the way that we make glazes and the materials we use in the glazes and the temperature we fire at is all very unique. And, um, you know, it's subtle, but it does give a different kind of a feel to the plates. The, the finishes of the different colors are all very different. You know, there's a very glossy blue, but it still has a little undulation in the glaze. There's a redwood color that's kind of got a very satiny finish. There's kind of a little bit um, slightly shinier white. and then a, 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 So all of them have their own personality and character. And for a, a company that you know isn't a small studio, it's not very typical kind of to find that. And it, it takes a lot of work to kind of keep that. And I think it's, I mean, for me, I think it's when you see a piece of Heath so there's something about it that makes you want to pick it up. And when you go to pick it up, you have a feeling that it's going to have some weight to it. So let's talk about feel, because uh, what's amazing about this location isn't just that there's a showroom, but that the manufacturing is transparently seen through the showroom. Um, and maybe when you walk into a space and you, you see plateware in front of you, you're apprehensive to pick it up because you think there's stock. As, as we had been discussing downstairs, but it's all there right in front of you. How, how important is that as part of Heath's mission? Can I speak to that? Um, 
you know, I think it's, it's very important that sort of accessibility of making something that's not precious um, that can be used every day is something that's deeply rooted in Heath's past. That's kind of that was the mission always in 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 the kind of uh, dishes that um, you know that the company wanted to make. So it continues to be important. It continues to be important that you know the display is not a pristine plate sitting on its own. In fact, it's a big stack, um, and that says something about okay, I can it's accessible. I want to pick this up. It can be uh, stacked in that way and used in that way, and and it's how it's you know, somebody's going to use it in their home, as opposed to on display. And there's no packaging, so it kind of adds to that, right? There's just stacks of plates and bowls mm-hmm. and cups, and you can see the color and you can pick them all up. And um, oftentimes, one is slightly, slightly different than another. Um, but what I love is you go in the warehouse and it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. So it's all really honest is that way that's how it works the warehouse it's when it when it comes out of the kiln it's stacked like that on the on the sorting table and then it goes like that in the warehouse and then it's like that in the store and it's not merchandising it's not the way we market it it's just like keeping it completely transparent and letting that beautiful plate always be beautiful plate and never covering it up yeah and then when you go home it's the same way and and, you know (laughs) it's wonderful about um uh you know when we did the um, the line with Alice Waters for Chez Panisse. You know, all the dishes there are kept on shelves behind the kitchen. And, um, you know, she chose to do three subtly different colors. And the way that they're stacked there on the shelves in big stacks, it's not one color in one stack, another color in another. It's however they fall. It's this kind of a nice mixing. And so, once again, you know, they end up in that stack. It's kind of the, the de facto uh, home these plates you said however they fall but there, there there is a very standardized structure to how you work and operate and respect your employees and respect your materials and uh, there there are two things that i want to touch on you have these signs downstairs that say between hand and machine how important of kind of a mantra of a slogan is that for heath well, that was that's actually the title to the show that we have downstairs. So it was kind of a uh, we thought a lot about that, and um, we have a new studio in San Francisco, and those words were really, um, you know, kind of summed up what we were trying to do in the studio. So the factory has um, a little bit more machine, um, but there is a lot of hand too. But our studio is is totally hand um, and that's where we developed the idea so it's hand throwing you know maybe some hand sketching you know there are no machines really it's just the wheel but um, what that show was doing is kind of you know exploring from one end of that from the hand really all the way to the machine and and of that show there was one piece it's a candle holder that we chose and we put into production so you know you could the point of those words was to really put some attention on that and um, get people to think about it and um, show the, sh- show that get people a little more educated about it because sometimes people do think, you know, oh that every plate they make is hand thrown on, on a wheel and 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 there's a lot to be learned. <laughs> That's what people think because we do have machines, we do have a lot of handwork, and it's all you know important to the kind of company that Heath is. Well, they're all tools that are used by people. You know, I think one of the mantras that has lasted a little bit longer for us. Uh, you know, has, has been about keeping everything on a human scale. 
and that's been a real mantra. And what that means is really that you know everything that we do in the factory and the company is about people. You know, people don't get lost within the organization. They don't get lost within the factory. They don't get lost in front of those machines. It's all on a human scale. And that helps with the way that we kind of make decisions and make considerations and, and all those things because everything you do affects people, be it the people that you work with or the customers. Uh, and it's important to keep all those things in mind, and that's why keeping things on a human scale acts as a reminder for that. I love the word human scale because you've also created a space here that is, is more like a redefined mall or an aggregate, you know, because there's Blue Bottle Coffee, there's a forthcoming restaurant. I hate that word, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, but at the same time, it, it's... And we are both from New Jersey. Yeah, <laughs> but it's a, it's a common space, and, you know, it, it is a common good. Um, and I want to touch the, the, the idea of the complexity of simplicity, which is uh, the subtitle for the He Ceramics book by Chronicle, written by Amos Klausner. Um how important is simplicity and how complex is complexity because it doesn't show how hard it is to actually produce what you do it seems effortless downstairs and there's this aura uh, of you know light airiness it's hard Uh, it's pretty hard (laughs) and i think because of the way the things we care about it makes it like extra hard and complicated and if you are really just trying to be super profitable um, or keep things easy and simple. Keep things easy, then we would have to make different decisions. For example, um, how many glazes do we make in dinnerware? You know, 12 or something, and each one is total. No, it's way more than that. Well, in our yeah. dinnerware line, yeah. I mean, there's more. There's bowls and stuff. But however many it is, <laughs> it's not three. And um, what happens when you do that many is there's – each one needs to be um, – it has all different ingredients, so you have to buy a lot of different ingredients. You have to make it kind of in a certain way. But the real tricky part comes when you're going to spray the glaze onto the plate. So all the plates are more or less the same, but every glaze color that you do needs to be applied differently. Sometimes there's two coats. Sometimes there's three coats. Each glaze gets applied at a different weight. You weigh the plate before you glaze it, you glaze it, you weigh the plate after, and see if you have the exact amount of grams that has been calculated for that. So it's kind of complicated. Each time you plates, add... because there's also... Right. A teapot is very different to glaze than One a, example a plate. to keep yeah. it simple and complex <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> but, it, but just in answer to that question, it was like what some companies would do to keep it simple would say we have one glaze base and then we're going to add colorants to make some different colors that people would like but then you only have a difference in kind of the the, almost like the tint you know like a paint but um, in order to get those kind of really different feels in the finish and the different textures that I was talking about they're totally different glazes different glaze bases they one fires better in the middle of the kiln than the outside of the kiln. Um, different glazers tend to be able to have different expertises at different glazes. And so it's very complicated to manage and to kind of keep it all together when you make those kind of decisions. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the decisions we tend to make are, will it be wonderful? <laughs> Is yeah. it not wonderful? Well, it should be wonderful, and usually... You know, on so many levels, it's it's and and 
and because we control every level from designing, making, selling, there's so many different stages. So sometimes it's also hard just, you know, what's complicated is, you know, one day Kathy might be thinking of a glaze for a new seasonal glaze for the holidays. And then the next is how to package, you know, flatware that we sell in the showroom, you know, and it's like jumping back and forth. Everything requires the same amount of consideration because we want it all to be holistic. So making something wonderful is hard, and, and you know, hopefully after a while, hard becomes normal <laughs> and you know, ideally gets easy. But, it's hard, but to, it's hard to build a company culture around that and make people also excited <clears throat> that it's worth it. You know, it's worth it to add this other glaze. It makes everything that much more complicated. Mm-hmm. But you know, I think at this point, after 10 years, where people do seem to support Heath, it's not inexpensive to do things this way. The products are quite expensive, and um, and yet we're getting that support. I think that the employees do start to realize that, wow, this is wonderful because it's working, yeah. and it's a good place to work, and we can kind of you know, get support in a way that we can do it in a way that we think has a lot of integrity um, on every level, design-wise and all the way down the line. And I think the results sort of prove, you know, kind of eventually people see the results, people we work with, our employees, and they say, okay, it did work, you know, but oftentimes it's kind of, you know, we come in and say, like, it should be like this, and somebody might say, well, where I worked before, they did this, and we're, we say, well, it's not going to be as wonderful, and so we do it, and then it turns out amazing. People don't maybe didn't expect it, and like now they they kind of you know they kind of get where we want to go with things. One hundred fifty people working for the company, making approximately seventy five hundred pieces a week, uh, over forty thousand a year. Mm-hmm. Going back to that simplicity, complexity. Um, I think the best way to understand what you do is maybe. Uh, you know, doing a timeline of what it's like to be a plate. Hmm. How many days does it take to actually make one, put it on the shelves? What, what is its conception? First, you make the clay. Let's go back and forth. First, you make the clay. <laughs> so one day you make the clay. Um, the next day you form that clay into the shape of a plate. Let, mm-hmm. it, let it dry. Then you trim it. You, you trim the edges, make them smooth. And you hand finish that with some sponging. Then you make sure it gets dry. You dry it. Try it again. (laughs) Um, uh, Then it goes to glazing, and it's hand sprayed. And after the glazing, it's wiped, so the foot is wiped, so the glaze is wiped off, and sometimes the edge is wiped off to expose the clay. Yeah, hand trim the edge. Um, And then it dries again. (laughs) And then the day after that, it is usually fired. And the firing process starts first thing in the morning, um, 6 a.m. start to load the kilns and then um, it fires for about nine hours um, and then it cools all night so it's firing all day cooling all night and then um, 6 a.m. the next morning kiln gets unloaded and loaded again um, at the unloading point then it goes to QC yeah so it gets pulled out it's still warm usually the plates are you know you have to wear gloves to pull them out 6 a.m. in the morning it's a wonderful activity in the winter time because it's kind of like Christmas. You never know what's going to come out of this colorful load of dinnerware. And then it's sorted into first quality and second quality, which is really a qualitative decision, uh, you know, ultimately. And then um, all that's happening in Sausalito. Then the plate goes in the truck. It comes to San Francisco, and it goes in our warehouse. 
um, and or it's possible it could go to a restaurant order where at that point it would be sorted there. Once it's in our warehouse, it either goes to um, one of our stores or it gets sold online or a restaurant. And that's the whole story. Yeah. It, it's kind of amazing uh, because I hear these processes and equate them so often to food processes, yeah. uh, especially, you know, taking these hot plates out of the kiln with mm-hmm. it, it's like a bread baker it's yeah. it's the patience of you know a cheese maker or someone that's doing salumi it's also you know it's like you put something in in one form you put a plate in the kiln in one form and it comes out in a totally different form looking totally different like bread so how often are you kind of you know uh, exploring that cross curricular going to cheese makers salumi makers bread makers and seeing how Heath can be a part of their lives. Well, Kathy's a vegetarian, that's, that's so we don't do the salome <laughs> part. But that's the fun part, <laughs> too, is seeing, you know, because, yeah, the plate's life ends, um, or another beginning is when it has the food on it. And um, that's a pretty exciting part. I mean, especially when you get to go um, to the restaurant, and it really is a detail that matters, you know, and... Um, we have this amazing time now going to really, sometimes you go to a really wonderful restaurant, restaurant and the shiny white, white plate is just like, it's such a bummer. <laughs> or when you pick it up and it feels too light. You yeah. Know, uh, it doesn't have the feel for it. And it's really not, I don't, it's not because it's not Heath and we think everything should be Heath. It's just, I don't know, it's the details of everything, you know, should be right. The flatware should be right. The glassware should be right. Yeah. Or sometimes, you know, there's some, super designed kind of plate that's like you know asymmetrical asymmetrical and it's i mean it's very nice on its own but it it feels like especially if the food is trying to be honest but very good and then you got this crazy plate so it's it's interesting we have reactions to those kind of This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. Let's talk about your first restaurant client when you took over the company, Charles Fan of 
slanted door uh, who, who you had told me actually worked in ceramics or in Claire in, in, in his prior life. Um, what was that collaboration like with him? What was that discussion? And uh, uh, how is his how is Heath utilized in this restaurant? So that well, that was a long time ago. I think it was 2004. It was right. Uh, was our first real big opportunity to collaborate with someone yeah, um, on we a restaurant. Excited. Yeah, we were really we're excited. excited. And Charles and his architect, Ollie Lundberg, came over to Sausalito, um, and we started pulling out dishes and trying to figure out what their needs were um, aesthetically. I remember they came over. It was, a, it, was a, it was a night. It was the yeah, end of the day, and we night. were like the only people left in the factory. <laughs> Everybody else had gone home, and it was Charles and Ollie and, Ollie and Kathy and me in the warehouse. Yeah, we were just pulling out stuff, trying mm. to figure out what his... We hadn't talked much about it prior, I don't mm. think. So it was like, what was the feel of the restaurant? What did Charles want to do with the food? Mm. And he had some pretty specific ideas. And I think, you know, the materials for the restaurant were already picked out. So it was a lot about, you know, it was a lot about the color and the finish of the glaze. I believe we... It started it, with mist. Mist was the color, and it had a lot to do with the, the sense of light over there on the waterfront and the other glass materials that were used. You know, it definitely was very, yeah, a, a very was. conscious decision at the time. You know, that glaze is sort of like a, how would you describe it? It's a pale... It's on a white clay, so blue. it's a very light, pale, bluish glaze. Like a misty blue. Yeah, mm-hmm. misty blue. And it was something about it being close to the water, mm-hmm. too, and the, there was a lot of glass, and... Um, and they had natural wood tables, so they wanted to kind of be natural but fresh and clean. So that color worked. But then we also worked on these other grayish, um, grayish blue glazes on brown clay that were really pretty, and that were only for the restaurant too. We did bowls and those. And then didn't they do colorful dessert dishes that were really great? Mm-hmm. So at the end of the meal, you get these like kind of crazy colors coming out but the the process was quite nice i mean i think we you know we met once made a bunch of samples and put Mm -hmm. it together and it was probably one of those ones that you know was opening soon i think it was opening soon it was a you know for the restaurants we were doing then it was a huge order for us and you know it's a big restaurant it sees a lot of covers every evening and and you know lunches as well and it was the first restaurant too where we thought okay how about if you know, maybe we can give you a little bit of a better deal, Charles, if we go on the menu, you know, because people were talking about, you know, it's a time when, 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 you know, purveyors were first being put on the menu and given credit, you know, the farm where such and such came from. And we thought, well, the dishes can be that too, especially being from the Bay Area and it being a Bay Area restaurant. Um, it made sense to us. It was one of the first times we did that. That was a big deal. I want to talk about in that same vein, uh, not even collaborators, but other industries, other artists that you support, because part of the showroom isn't just Heath. It's about like-minded individuals, like-minded design. Um, And again, you know, having farms on menus, uh, often tableware, even the table, the chair itself is, Mm -hmm. is overlooked. How important is it to show all parts of the table in, in, you know, kind of in the same light as you represent Heath, that, you know, you are a larger community than just plateware. Yeah, I mean, it's really important, and it's kind of exciting to us. It's what we care about, and we're interested in that, because it feels feels really good when we can, um, 
you know, we feel like we're help supporting other people who have care about similar things to what we care about. It's creating really beautiful things that are done in a beautiful way, you know, treating people fairly, using good materials, um, you know, kind of treading lightly, making things that last for a long time. So the more we can do to kind of support and share other people who are doing that, I mean, it's great. It's great for us. And it feels it feels good. I mean, I think that um, you know what's funny is sometimes we have these uh, you know single person suppliers and, and downstairs. We you know I showed you the cutting boards made by a guy named Jose Rigero in in Michigan, and uh, then there's some other you know uh, uh, pepper grinders that are made by a guy we know over in Berkeley who makes uh, two on his lunch hour and one after dinner. <laughs> And we're the only one that only wants to sell his uh, his pieces, and it's funny because sometimes you know it's, they're one person, and sometimes they can only make so much. Uh, sometimes they have other jobs, and sometimes we run out of product, and and, and sometimes our you know our people in our showrooms will get a little bit upset. Why can't we get you know this again? You know that's not how things can work, and and, and we kind of remind everybody you know it's only one guy. And in order to be able to sell this wonderful thing from one guy, those are the those are the kind of compromises that you make, and that's fine because that's the other part that makes them wonderful. Uh, and it's not worth being in stock all the time is not worth the compromise of having being able to have something wonderful by made by a wonderful craftsman in your showroom. Which means, I mean, we're quite conscious of scale because <clears throat> if you get too big, you can't do that. Back to human scale again. Yeah. So bringing in other artists right through the wall is a small trade company. Can you tell me a little bit about having them in the same space as Heath? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's always hard. We're always very immersed in our work, and sometimes we used to feel like, oh, gosh, we're out in Sausalito, we're living under a rock, we don't know what's going on, and yet we're... You know, we're very interested in knowing that. But so when we did this, it, this building and we started this project, it was like, well, we have extra space. Let's share it with people that we want to be around, that we want to work around and who are in kind of other areas. They know other people. They're working in other materials. So we feel like but we... But it's related, yeah. But related in some way. Yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, it's related. But... Um, Working with Matt was just Matt at Small Trade Company bringing him, having him have the space in here. It, it's inspiring. We kind of walk down the hall and get inspired by some textile he's just gotten from Japan or some like, you know, some new way they're kind of like weaving these bags or whatever, whatever they have going on in there is definitely outside our world. And it's um, exciting to, I mean, it's outside you know, normally what we're doing in a work day, but to be able to get a little bit of that injected as you walk down the hall, it's really... And then there's um, the crossovers of, you know, when he does uniforms for restaurants that we do the dishes for. You know, there's those kind of connections, and then it goes outside of that. And so there's all these nice crossovers and and inspirations, and it's a the way that he makes uh, his products in his workshop is such a different process from ours, too. It's like the sounds are different. Um you know, the motions are different. So it's another nice kind of way to take a pause and be inspired. So let's talk about other inspirations. Well, let's just talk about food as an inspiration because we're, we're putting the plate before, you know, 
the plated dinner, the horse before the cart kind of thing. Um, when you go out to eat and see a plate composed, how does that change your idea of a plate? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes it gives us ideas, but usually... I think the first time we saw, we we went to Chez Panisse after our dishes were there, it was a little eye-opening for us. I think there was a perfect amount of plate and perfect amount of food. You know, sometimes there's too much plate, sometimes there's too much food. And it was a really nice balance. And, 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 And actually, it wasn't even the first time we went to the restaurant. I think it was the first time that I cooked, and I'm by no means a great cook, but... I do like to cook. And the first time I cooked at home on a Chez Panisse plate, I plated it and I thought, wow, I'm a much better cook today because <laughs> it just looked amazing. And I hadn't really been aware of that in the whole. I wasn't so involved in the design process as Kathy was, but I hadn't really been as aware of it until I put something that I had made on that plate. And I became instantly a better chef. <laughs> So that that thing does happen when we go to restaurants and we are thinking, I mean, especially if it's, if it is our plate, you know, it's like, wow, is this working for the restaurant? Mm -hmm. Is this kind of detail coming through? The other thing that's really interesting is the lighting and how much the lighting affects um, the colors of the glaze and the food. So like you go into Chez Panisse, it's quite dark. Everything kind of has like a very warm colored light. And the plates that we did at first, the glazes, um, they're pretty subtle, and in a restaurant, they're even subtler. Like, you can't really tell um, the difference, but there is a textural difference. It's still successful, but it's very different than what, you know, you see when you're making the plates. And um, that happens, too. I mean, in Flour and Water, it's very dark, and um, they have very dark colors, and they don't have the same contrast um, with the food as you see it out here. But it's all part of it. It's all very intentional. But experiencing that and experiencing how other people want it to feel um, is an interesting part of the process. And it does give us ideas sometimes, too. You know, it's like, well, maybe those colors should be actually more contrasting. Um, and, and, you know, it would change the feel of it in maybe a good way. Um, you know, I think when, um, you know, Chez Panisse is, you know, it's been around for a while and it's classic, of course, and there's so many other wonderful restaurants in the Bay Area now as well. But when, when Alice first came to us and, you know, she talked about how, you know, all the other parts of the restaurant and the, and the design and the furniture and the lighting and, and, and everything had been very considered and the plates were the last thing that, you know, needed to sort of nest in with everything else and, I think it's a great example of a space where none of the elements is competing too much with the other, from the architecture, the furnishings, the plateware, and the food. All seems to be in, in quite a bit of harmony. And uh, Well, Alice is very consistent. Very consistent that way. And she she actually worked with a designer who is a friend of hers, and they worked together on a lot of things. Yeah, so Christina that, Kim. Yeah, Christina Kim kind of helped pull that all together. Um, but great great process in that project so what i'm hearing from you and i I could be mistaken um is that it's not necessarily the plate first it it has to assimilate you know it has to become part of the larger picture and um robin and i were talking downstairs about how important home means to heath can you kind of explain that a little bit more what is heath's place in a home um 
Well, I mean, dinner, you know, you know, eating is something that happens in the home as much as three meals a day, you know, and, and, and uh, so it's something that is very central, just like the kitchen, you know, it's the place that you eat all those meals on is something that is, you know, touches your family three times a day. Um, so a lot of things, I think, kind of radiate from that. And we think about things in a holistic way and in terms of, you know, the food, the plates, the design of the kitchen, the glassware, the linens, the furnishings, you know, how does that all kind of radiate outwards? And sometimes Heath is not right for the home. You know, sometimes we might even walk in a restaurant and think, hmm, I like the dishes, but I don't think they actually go so well with the design of the restaurant. You know, it's like you don't have to, you know, it's not always going to fit in every situation. But I, I, de- I definitely agree. I mean, it starts with the, our, our approach to home starts with the plate. And I, I like that. And I, um, I mean, it's something that we stepped into that was already going. Yeah. But one of the first things when we came to Heath that I found kind of fascinating is how passionate people were about their plates. And this is not in new restaurant culture where in people, these are like, People have had Heath for 30, 40 years and have passed it down even now, maybe a generation, right? And they would come in and they would hold their plate and speak about their plate as if, you know, with this huge connection. And it was like, you know, it is kind of like the heart of their home and and their life has gone on around this plate. It, It was really it was really remarkable and touching that this product could have so much meaning and so much attachment to people. And I think yeah. especially it was, you know, the older people who were who were remembering they registered for it and, you know, 40 years ago. I mean, it's crazy. But that kind of, I mean, we really appreciated that. And especially after having kind of lives where we were designing products, which are technology products, which just don't have that um, and and it was just refreshing, and you thought, okay, let's build something around this. This is really good yeah. stuff. And so, because to tell you about their first cell phone. <laughs> no, no, that doesn't. And in forty really years happen. from now, it's like it's a different kind of a story. But this one was very simple and very soulful to these to a lot of people, and we wanted to make sure that that. We don't lose that. You don't want to lose yeah. that. So when you're you're building a home around that, it's important to remember. But um, there are other products that I think can have similar resonances. Absolutely. But the plate kind of it start, it really the plate brings it home. And it, it is very important. And I think you know for us when we first started hearing those stories, we still were not really, you know, we were young enough that we hadn't really had you know the dinnerware set that we were going to be living with. And so it was wonderful to hear these stories that, you know, they are about, you know, my husband and I registered for this 30 years ago. This is our wedding dinnerware, and I want to replace the piece. Or, you know, you know, people would come in and say, I raised four children and never broke a single piece. You know, four kids, and, and we lived in a, you know, and, 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 you know, our house was heated in a pot belly stove, and we lived in the woods, and, you know, <laughs> stories like that. And, and, and That's an exaggeration. No, I really <laughs> had no somebody. No, I had story. somebody tell me that story about how they, you know, they lived out there and they raised four kids and didn't break a single piece. And then, you know, then there's other ones of, you know, I just, you know, I was just given this by my mother or my grandmother, and this is the, these are dishes that I grew up with when, you know, as a child, and they passed this on, and, you know, or, 
the opposite of, you know, I'm here today to, to get myself a new set of dishes. I had Heath for 30 years, and I just gave it to my daughter so I could get myself a new set. You know, all these kind of wonderful relationships um, that happen because people live with these things. And because it's of the quality that it can last that long, and, and both in terms of its aesthetic and durability, those experiences and memories are able to happen. That's really important. Even though this is a new space for uh, a Heath, there's history on the walls already. When you sit in the cafe, there's a chronology of how Heath has changed, how Heath has you know, gone with the times. But it's always been there. And that's what's so special when you hear these stories about people gifting, giving away, um, breaking they can always return somewhere to replenish that, mm-hmm. to, to restock that. And having it in such a busy place in San Francisco must have a different context than Sausalito. How has having this factory changed your interaction with customers, with, with employees and customers, with, with your mindset about how to treat employees and customers? Well, I don't know. It's there's a lot of things that are different, but a lot of things that are the same too. I mean, it has given us, and it, this space has given us an introduction to new people, new customers, um, people who don't come out to Sausalito, and um, there's a stronger connection between the making and the selling in in the showroom than there is in Sausalito. So that makes it easier. You know, it's pretty easy to, for people to understand what we're about when you walk in the showroom. You're looking at your plate. There's behind it, the wall is clear, and there's people making, you know, stuff in the factory. So that part makes it easier. But um, I think this, there is something about, we always talk about the difference in the locations, and Sausalito is the roots. You know, that has the history. It's pretty clear as you drive into the parking lot, you know you can see what it was you can understand what era it's from there's all this stuff that just you know kind of emits out and here this is kind of new and so um it's a little bit of a different story and um well it's not a different story it's just it comes across a little bit in a different way we kind of wanted to make these places i mean they have different personalities and so they're intentionally you know, it's kind of an adventure. This is one kind of experience, and this is a different kind of experience. You know, this is sort of the, uh, you know, the latest incarnation and where we make tile on Salcedo is that sort of that history, that core that you could never replicate if you tried to recreate it from scratch. You couldn't do that. There's too much history on those walls that's, you know, clay on those walls that have been splattered there for years to... Um, you can never really kind of take that away. So it's a very, very special place over there. And this is a special place in a different way because it's a little bit more about our design process. So whatever experience someone wants to have, they should make their way to either Sausalito or San Francisco, visit Heath Ceramics. L.A. is a different different personality. Yeah, and L.A. as well. But bring it into your home because it it will be, like you said, the heart for many years to come. Uh, Catherine Bailey, Robin Petrovic. Thank you so much for bringing me into your home and for showing us Heath Ceramics. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan. Turk Al, hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website, 
or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>